according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, and we're dealing with uh, Proverbs chapter 18, almost to the end of the chapter. Today we're in verse 22. That means only two more verses after this, and we get to move on to chapter 19. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have on this day to assemble together. It is a grace provision, Father. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. Who are we? Why, why would we even be entitled to your thinking, your plan? Uh, but And yet, Father, this is where you've placed us. You've placed us in your Son, and you share with us your your plan, your thinking, your design. And I thank you for calling us your fellow workers. So, Father, we want to study as workmen needing not to be ashamed. We want to be equipped so we do the best job possible as your fellow workers. Thank you for the privilege of glorifying your Son. We ask that we might glorify Him today, and we thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we were talking about eating words and uh, uh, the, the fruit of it. That was verses 20 and 21. So with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. So not only do we speak the words so as to bear the fruit, then we eat the words so as to consume the fruit. And we are nourished by the fruit that we produce, and hopefully we're producing good fruit so that we're nourished by the uh, the good fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And so the same thing there as well. The power of the tongue being our production can be positive or negative, can be uh, good or bad, and uh, whichever it is, we're going to eat it. So make sure we're we're producing good fruit uh, so that it tastes good when it goes down. All right. Anyway, there's more you can preach on that. You know, there's no shortage of illustrations and human uh, stories about having to eat your own words in very embarrassing contexts and things, and I won't even start with that. But um, this is what the Scripture is dealing with, and so we're thankful there. All right, now, the fun verse. Marriage, women, getting married is a good thing. Verse 22, it says, "...he who finds a wife finds a good thing." and obtains favor from the Lord. And this verse really does stand alone. Uh, There are some uh, scholars that try to link it together and and find a a trinity of verses with 22, 23, 24. And I think, um, I don't know, I'm not convinced that it's it's best to do that. I think the poetry lets it stand by itself. Uh, I don't mind, I think 23 and 24 can be linked together in a pair, in a tandem, uh, but I would, uh, I'm not convinced that we should lump together all three of these. So in my outline anyway, I've kept verse 22 by itself. And let me back up here. Where did I put it? Here we go. Finding a wife is finding a good thing. If you find a wife, this is what you found. You found a good thing. Proverbs 18, 22. And so we have, 
really kind of neat poetry with respect to this. Uh, the manuscript also has a little bit of a question with respect to that. Uh, the scribes felt that a word might be missing, uh, that it, that originally perhaps what it should be saying is he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. And so there are some manuscripts that, that add the word, that have the word good twice. So instead of just matzah isha, they have matzah isha tovah. If you find a good wife, then you matzah tov, you find a good thing. Uh, I'm not convinced, and I think the, the majority of the, of the testimony doesn't put the duplicated word good in there at all. It's just he who finds a wife. And because a wife is a good thing, it is not good for the man to be alone. And if she happens to turn out to be a terrible wife, that's a different issue. All right, we're just talking about a wife versus being alone at the moment. And uh, alone is not good. Wife is good as far as what God has provided and what God has designed. Male and female, He created them. The human operation is designed to be um, the, the partnership, heirs together of the grace of life. And so this is what we have. And this is what uh, I think it's, uh, it's a sweet time. And of course, it's a tough time because, uh, you know, Jim's sitting here this morning and, and, and he just said goodbye to Mary Ellen. She's in heaven right now. So this is kind of a message that's dedicated to, to Jim and Mary Ellen as we discuss the, the blessings of these things. So, uh, Matzah Isha Matzah Tov. And uh, I just, I like saying it, I like saying it out loud. I even shared it on Facebook this morning. Matzah isha, matzah tov. And uh, he, he who finds, matzah is the verb of seeking. So if you find an isha, of course you're an ish that needs your isha. If you find your isha, you have found tov, good. You have found a good thing. And uh, it's just fun to say because matzah tov sounds like, what does matzah tov sound like? Yeah, sounds like muscle tough. That's right. So we can say, congratulations, you found a good thing. And it just sounds, uh, sounds pretty cool. All right. Understand, obviously, going back to Genesis 2, for the man, aloneness is not good. For the man, aloneness is not good. Genesis 2, verses 18 and 20. With rare exceptions, every ish needs an isha. And that's, uh, again, Genesis 2, 23 and 24. Also, uh, the Lord's statement in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. The exception might be Paul makes allowances, uh, the idea of celibacy in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. But he says he knows that that's not the normal case. That's not typical in, uh, in God's design. So sub-point A, for the man, aloneness is not good. Let me turn back to Genesis 2 and we can remind ourselves of this and give ourselves a preview since uh, Genesis will be our new series once Hebrews is complete on Sunday mornings. All right, so Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we have the summary statement in verse 1, just the overall creation itself in chapter 1 and verse 26 when God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so the, we have the, the declaration and the mandate, what's called the creation mandate. Humanity has sovereignty. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, 
then male and female, he created them. And so this is, uh, this is the order and this is the design. So God created man, that's Adam, that's humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them. Because it really does come in a process. Adam came first and uh, Eve uh, was not around until Adam recognized his aloneness, until Adam testified to the not good uh, circumstance of his aloneness. She was there, but she was there inside of him. She was there in the, the rib, if you will, the side that, uh, that got removed to fashion her. Nevertheless, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That requires a them. He can't do that by himself, all right? You can't tell him, well, he might be personally fruitful, but they are going to be more fruitful, the two together, more than just one plus one equals two. And then the multiplication requires the two, <laughs> as it were. And uh, we see how this goes. All right. Now that's the summary statements from chapter one. We get the detail now in chapter two. And in detail, we learn from verse seven, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and man became a living being. Man became a living soul. And this is the, the creation of Adam, and this is his impartation of life with the Nashama, breath of God. He becomes a living soul. Now this is Adam alone. Not Eve yet, but she's there. Her soul is inside of him. In fact, my soul, your soul, every human soul that descends from Adam is inside of him right now. If you, if you think about that, because we all descended from Adam and Eve genetically, uh, when, when David said, uh, from the dust, from the, uh, you formed my, my inner parts from the depths of the earth, to me that's powerful. God created the earth, put all of humanity in it, gathered a bit of it out, made Adam, and made all of us. How awesome is that? Well, we'll have more to study on that when we get to the Genesis series. So the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. That verse is critical because in Proverbs 8 it says, before the first dust I was born. So here's dust in, uh, in this verse here. All right. And then he gets to work. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Man singular. Eve's not around yet. So how long does it take for Eve to get created? And, that, and there's a debate. We're going to discuss this. Because we have to ask ourselves, was this on day six? Is this the longest day six in history? Or was it after day six? Was it after day seven? Was it after day eight? At what point? How long did it take Adam to, to process what it was he was commanded to do? So he gets placed. And uh, he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, uh, ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight, good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, So the man is placed there, the trees are placed there. Woman's not there yet. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. You study these rivers. There's no mountains here. This is why we know there's two different Edens, because the Eden in, in uh, Ezekiel 28 has 
mountains, but no mentioned rivers. All right, get past these rivers, get down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, singular, put him, singular, into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Do we think this is still day six? There's nothing that demands that it's day six. We could assume it's day six. We might consider that it is day six, but we don't know that. All right, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. How many meals is he going to eat on day six? (laughs) But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, is Eve here yet? Has Eve heard these words? Adam was here. Adam heard these words. We don't technically know when Eve heard these words. Did she hear from God or did she hear from Adam? Did Adam teach her this after she was created? All right. Then after the command and after the prohibition comes the statement of goodness or not goodness. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. And that statement is powerful because how many statements did we have in chapter one with it was good, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four. Most of the days have a good statement. With light and darkness, there's a good statement. The only day that doesn't have a good statement is day two when the uh, waters above are separated from the waters below and the atmosphere is reestablished. Day two does not have a goodness statement connected with it. I'm going to teach why that is when we get to our Genesis series. But we have good statement, good statement, good statement, good statement throughout five of those six days. And then the summary statement, behold, all was very good at the end of chapter one. So we're thinking, hey, things are great. Things are very good. We get into chapter two and something is not good. The man is alone. The man is alone. And I think that the the contrast of the good and then the day seven where he rests, where everything is very good, um, and then we get to the statement of not good is, uh, is significant. So we'll deal with that. It is not good for the man to be alone. Why? Because he's lonely? No, it's not about loneliness. It's not an emotional loneliness that's not good. It's about the requirement for help. I will make him a helper suitable for him. He needs help. All right? It's not, he doesn't need companionship, friendship, sex, whatever else. He's not lonely. He needs help because he has work to do. And the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, he needs help for that. But beyond the multiplication help that he needs, he needs help in the fruitfulness. He needs help in the, uh, the bearing of fruit for the glory of God. And uh, this is what we see here. All right. Now out of the ground. So the statement of goodness, notice verse 18 is separated from verse 20. But the detail in between here is significant. Out of the ground the Lord, uh, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Part of his mandate So, brought them to the man. Is this still day six? Or does it take more than a day to name all the animals? And uh, brought them to the man. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. 
And this is, this is glorious, all right? God gives delegated responsibility to name that animal. And, and you think God is limiting his own sovereignty here, or God is in permissive will. I mean, what if Adam chooses something stupid? What if he, you know, God's stuck with a dumb name now because Adam, you know, this is a delegated responsibility, and God is well pleased to observe Adam exercise that sovereignty. And he exercises that sovereignty without a helper. He does not yet have the helper to name these things. And whatever a man called it, that was its name. Yahweh said, let it be. Right? Make it so. Adam said, this is a duck. And God said, alright, that's a duck. Alright, that's a pig. That's a cow. Whatever. Of course there were Hebrew words for those things. And, uh, and God accepted every Every name that Adam created. His own, I mean, think about it. This is your own creativity when you come up with a name. It's your own imagination, creativity, your own will, your own, um, you know, you're not under a have to at that point. It's, it's a want to. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. And, and notice, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So not only is he giving names, he's also observing their function, he's also observing their role within creation. And he's finding that all of these things he has dominion over are not suited to be his helper. They're not suited to be heir together of the grace of life. The idea of aloneness. He's alone and he has no help. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep and we know how this works. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned a woman from the rib which he had taken from the man, brought her to the man. So now what do we have? We have a man and we have a woman and we have a man with something missing inside of him. (laughs) Okay? Something that he used to have inside of him, but it's gone now. Right? The hole. The Lord, he closed up the hole in that place. The flesh at that place. So the man without the woman is literally missing something. Literally. As well as positionally and spiritually and, and, uh, and all the rest. So fashioned into a, a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man now said, and this is significant, this is now Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The genetic material for Eve came out of him. Whatever her DNA was like and his DNA was like, or what his DNA was like before he surrendered her DNA outside of himself. There's a puzzle for you. Also her soul. Also her soul. You know what we don't see here? There is no nashamah. God doesn't breathe into the woman like he breathed into the dust body for Adam to become a living soul. When when she was taken out of him, she was already a living soul. That's that's key. All right. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And so we have Ish and Isha. 
And this is the order. It's the only time ever that woman came out of man. Ever since then, uh, it's women that give birth. And uh, every man on the planet today came from a woman. But the first woman ever came from the man. And that's the design. Because the man needs her. He is, abs- he is missing without her. He is alone without her. Aloneness is not good. With rare exceptions, every ish needs an isha. And so for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. For this reason. It's not parents that were taken out of Adam. God didn't take a, cup, a pair of ribs out of Adam and form parents for him. He took a rib out of Adam and gave him a wife. And the aloneness need of any man in his generation is not for parents. Parents raise and train up and, uh, and then kick out of the nest. <laughs> All right? That's the figure of speech we talk about. And uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, so there's the issue there. The, uh, the Lord, of course, cited this in Matthew 19 when the two different schools were trying to get him to take sides in there. They had a divorce debate going on and they're trying to trap Jesus into picking sides on this. Um, Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And the liberal school said, yeah, any reason at all, or no reason, just because you want to. You know, she burned the dinner, write her a certificate of divorce. And uh, I mean, literally, that was, their, that was their position. And then the other school said, eh, that's a bit liberal for us. We think uh, there needs to be, you know, a more serious infraction. And, uh, and the idea that what Moses commanded and, and the, the thing related to divorce under, in Deuteronomy. Um, anyway, so they had this big debate going on. So he answered and he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And that seems, that seems to be a strange answer to can we get divorced for any reason we want? But he takes them back to Genesis to show them how foundational the male and female uh, design is. That if you're going to frivolously send your wife packing, you realize what you're doing there, it's not good for the man to be alone. She is designed to complete you. She is designed to help you. She is designed uh, that she came from you originally. Eve came from Adam in the original design. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. That be joined to his wife is a passive. We don't do the joining. God does the joining. That's what it says in verse 6, what God has joined together. So God does the joining. Of course, the man and the woman, they do the physical joining, the physical coupling and the the consummation of the marriage, but that's not what this passage is talking about. This is talking about the man and the woman being joined. God does this. God does this. All right. And then it says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
when God rejoins this separated rib from the man that lost the rib, now there God makes them one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he says, you understand what you do when you, when you send her packing. You understand what you do when you write the certificate of divorce. You sever what God has joined together. You're acting contrary to the activity of God. God has joined together and you are slicing it. You are severing it. You are parting the two. So you're turning one into two again after God has turned two into one. That's what divorce does. That's what divorce does. Now, um, and we've taught this before also, mostly in the First Corinthians series because chapter 7 deals with that, but um, make sure you don't misread verse 6. When it says, let no man separate, that's a prohibition. That's a command not to do something. And, and the command not to do something understands that you can do it. It is possible to do it. Don't fall for the Catholic doctrine. It's sad that so many Protestants and evangelicals and so forth, they fall for the Catholic doctrine that says if you have an illegitimate divorce, then you're not divorced at all. You're still married in the sight of God. That's bogus. That is totally bogus. It's not biblical. And it violates this verse. Because this verse says when you divorce, you sever. The severing takes place. That'd be like saying a mur- when, when the Bible says thou shalt not murder that it's not possible to murder anybody. No, you do murder somebody when you murder somebody and they're, they're dead. Okay? And when the Bible says let no man separate and you divorce, you have just separated what God has joined together. You can't say that, oh, they're still married in the sight of God because no man can separate them. That's a lie. That's a misreading of this text. It doesn't say that you can't. It says don't do it because you can do it. Don't do it. And if you do it, then they're separated. All right? They're separated. Don't fall for the lie that says, oh, they're still married in the sight of God, so you can't get remarried because you're still married to this other person. No, you've separated from that other person. You understand why this is so vital? People mess this up and it's... it's frustrating. All right. Speaking of 1 Corinthians 7, this is where Paul makes a concession and he says, you know, it would be great if uh, you were 100% dedicated to the Lord, you didn't have the distractions of a, of a spouse, but not everyone has that um, giftedness. And when he's talking about marriage and remarriage, this is actually a remarriage passage. Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. So to put it bluntly, if you're unmarried, no sex. But if you're married, that's what marriage is, that's the the venue for, uh, for sex, because of fornications. 
The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, in other words, satisfy her sexual needs. Likewise also the wife to her husband to satisfy his sexual needs. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, stealing from each other, except by agreement for a time that you may choose just to have a season of, uh, of spiritual devotion, and so you put the physical thing on hold, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So a husband and wife might choose to have a, a, a season of, of prayer dedication to, to uh, strengthen their marriage and to reorient to uh, different tests that their family is going through at the moment. But it's only for a period of time before you resume normal marriage uh, activities. And then in verse 6 he says, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. It's concession. It's not a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, unmarried. We think he had previously been married. As a voting member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. But whether he was widowed or the Sanhedrin annulled his marriage when he got saved, or when he got ushered into the body of Christ, I should say, he's not married during any of his apostolic journeys, during any book that he wrote. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. But to the unmarried and to the widows, that is, to the divorced person and the widow, It is good for them to, if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. All right. Anyway, so there's that issue there too. For the man, aloneness is not good. With rare exceptions, every ish needs an isha. Point, Sub-point B. Finding a wife is the Lord's temporal life favor. The Hebrew ratzon, favor, acceptability, delight. Finding a wife is the Lord's temporal life favor, even as finding Christ is the Lord's eternal life favor. There's a parallelism between Proverbs 18.22, where we are today, and Proverbs 8.35, where we were months ago and, and actually where we were not that long ago last week in the Colossians series. We were in Proverbs 8, were we not? But there's a parallel between Proverbs 18.22 and Proverbs 8.35. And I'm going to show you how this works. But finding a wife, finding a wife. I remember it was in uh, May of 1990, on a Wednesday night, the first time I ever visited Austin Bible Church, I sat on the front row, and um, four rows behind me was Shirley Newton and uh, and a young lady sitting next to her that I was just bedazzled by. Okay, Twitter painted like Thumper in uh, in Bambi. You're like, wow, there's a young lady there, and that was God's temporal life favor. I didn't know her name yet, and so forth, but uh, that everything changed in May of 1990. And that is the Lord's temporal life 
favor. What does it say? Again, Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor, that is, receives and it takes possession of, obtains ratzon, favor from the Lord. From the Lord. Because you think you found a wife, the Lord's the one that actually found it for you. <laughs> the Lord's the yinta, the matchmaker. The Lord found her for you. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what he loves to do. This is what delights him to do this. Remember, if we're saved and the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that includes the good works of being the spouse to the other person that God created in Christ Jesus to do good works which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the good works God designed for me is to be Sharon's husband. The good works, among the good works that God designed Sharon for is to be my wife. See how that works? Mutual, reciprocal good works that are done one to another. Heirs together of the grace of life. Now, you can spot it also in Proverbs 8.35. And let me just show you here as long as I have this up. Sometimes a visual helps. I'm very visual. Um, Proverbs 18.22. And let me take that away. All right. Proverbs 8.35. When you see it side by side, it jumps out at you. So he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Make it slightly smaller. There we go. Back in Proverbs 8, he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. That second clause is identical. Word for word, letter for letter, tittle for tittle. And obtains favor from the Lord. And obtains favor from the Lord. Now in Proverbs 8, finding me is getting saved. Finding me is coming to the the beloved begotten one. That if you find me, you find life. If you find a wife, you find a good thing. But if you find Jesus Christ, you find life. And so, you know, we have to prioritize those that way. I have to tell you, finding the Lord is the best thing I've ever found. Finding Sharon is the second best thing I've ever found. <laughs> I mean, that's the order. But, but Proverbs put these two phrases in parallel for a reason. Obtaining favor. Obtaining favor from the Lord. On the one hand, I'm, I'm obtaining spiritual favor, eternal life favor. On the other hand, I'm obtaining temporal life favor. The blessings of this life, because marriage is only for this life. Right? Till death us do part. In the resurrection, we won't be married. But in this life, we are married. Because in this life, she is the one that finishes my aloneness. She's my helpmate. It's uh, 
It's an interesting expression. So again, I'll open these back up and I'll show you what I'm talking about here. Click that open again. Here we go. And so verse 22 obtains favor from the Lord. And uh, to search for that, wonder how many times the Bible ever uses that expression? Obtains favor from the Lord? Only the two that I've shown you already this morning. That's, those are the only two places. Proverbs 8.35 and Proverbs 18.22. The only two places. Proverbs 8.35 and Proverbs 18.22. He who finds me finds life. That's getting saved, finding Jesus. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. In both cases, when you find Jesus and receive life, you obtain favor from the Lord. And when you find a wife, you find a good thing, and you obtain favor from the Lord. In both cases, we have the Lord hugging us. We have the Lord delighted in us. We have the Lord ratzon, delighted in our blessing. So finding a wife is the Lord's favor, temporal life favor. Even as finding Christ is the Lord's eternal life favor. In case you've forgotten what favoring is, favoring is the opposite of uh, abomination. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but re- you might recall the totneva for abomination. All throughout Proverbs, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 8, uh, 14 more times in uh, Proverbs 11 through 24, four more times in Proverbs 25 through 29. Uh, we have, there's abomination all through Proverbs. And remember, the concept of abomination is revulsion, a compelling impulse to drive something far from one's presence. Anything that's an abomination, you're pushing away. You're pushing away. You don't want it at arm's length. In fact, you want longer arms so you can push it further. You want it nowhere near you. It's an abomination. But a ratzon is the opposite of that. A ratzon is a favor, uh, an acceptable thing, a delight It is something which impels someone to embrace it close. If it's something you delight in, then you want it closer to you. In fact, you embrace it, you hug it, you draw it near. And uh, it's translated favor, acceptable, delight. Uh, Some sacrifices are are an acceptable sacrifice before the Lord. Other sacrifices are an abomination before the Lord. And Leviticus does the same thing Proverbs does. It contrasts with Ratzon. Anyway, here we have favor. And favor is used throughout Psalms, throughout Proverbs, uh, throughout Leviticus. Another delight, uh, a favorable day of the Lord in Isaiah 61 too. Understand a delight is a favorable, acceptable thing which impels someone to embrace it close. So if you think about, you know, we have the idiom, you know, a match made in heaven. Well, 
in a sense, consistent with this terminology, when Yahweh finds your wife for you, and when you identify God's grace provision, then it is a delight. He is delighted. We're delighted, of course, as well, but I think that's secondary. He is delighted. He's delighted to save us, and He's delighted to provide our spouse. He's delighted to provide our spouse. All right. Again, I don't think we have to spend a ton of time on this, but you'll see the imagery on this. Psalm 19. And um, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, be favorable, be ratzon in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The idea is favorable, acceptable, delightful. And yes, we want delightful words, acceptable words, not the angry words that are an abomination. Psalm 40 in verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Doing the will of God is a delight. It is favorable. Psalm 69 and verse 13. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. A favorable, acceptable time. Psalm 145 has two uses, one in verse 16, one in verse 19. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. That's what he's delighted to do. He's pleased to do. Uh, Proverbs 8.35, which we saw, he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Isaiah 61.2, the favorable day of the Lord. This is the passage that Jesus was reading when he had the scroll and was leading the Bible study in uh, Galilee. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the ratzon, favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. (laughs) First Advent, second Advent. Right there is where he stopped the reading. He rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down because he was rightly dividing the word of truth distinguishing between first advent and second advent. Anyway, the favorable year of the Lord is the ratzon year of the Lord. So finding favor, finding favor. When you find a wife, you're obtaining favor. And this is how God has designed it. A delight, a favorable, acceptable thing. Impelling someone to embrace it close. This temporal life favor is what joins together fellow heirs of the grace of life. Fellow heirs of the grace of life. Very frequently, ratzon, 
The Hebrew ratzon is rendered by the Greek charis, the Greek grace, unmerited favor, grace. And so when you have a husband and wife that are heirs together of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3, 7, it's a reflection of God's favor. Marrying the, the Isha that His grace has provided for you. 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. We, we get that. We understand in the same way means everything from verses 1 through 6 gets uh, restated and placed now on the man. Don't think that, that Peter or, or the Bible is dumping on women for six verses and then giving the man an easy out with a single verse all by himself. No, he gets those six verses plus verse 7. Are we clear on that? <laughs> So in the first six verses, you've got a believing wife and a, and, a, and a useless husband who's disobedient to the Lord, and he's not in the Word of God. And uh, yet by her uh, submissive behavior, uh, even without a word spoken, she can win her husband. So you have six verses of a godly woman and a husband that's out of it that needs to repent, that needs to get right with God. Verse 7 takes all of that applies it to the man and adds even more. That's why it says you husbands in the same way. So make your own application of verses 1 through 6. You have a husband in the Word of God and a wife who's out of it. But then it goes on. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Understand there's differences fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Marital prayers. All right. So point C. A woman of excellence who can find. (laughs) Well, the Lord can find and the Lord provides. The Lord can provide. The Lord can find and the Lord provides. What I'm doing here is I'm blending Proverbs 18 with Proverbs 12, Proverbs 31, and Proverbs 19. Taking four different Proverbs and uh, blending them when we talk about finding a wife. Because Proverbs uh, 18 says, yep, you found a wife, you found a good thing. But Proverbs 31 says, how can you find an excellent wife? Let's look at Proverbs 31. Can I explain this in 13 minutes? I think so. Proverbs 31. I'm not going to do the whole Proverbs 31 in 13 minutes, but I'm going to do is show you the rhetorical question. In verse 10, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels and it goes on to describe these things. Okay? An excellent wife who can find? Well, that's a rhetorical question. It's like uh, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, who can know it? It's a rhetorical question. Who can know the, the heart? God can know the heart. In fact, He does know the heart. He looks upon the heart. Likewise, an excellent wife who can find? God can find. <laughs> 
God can find and God will provide. And it's curious to me, this excellent wife wasn't that way when you met her. I mean, she was good enough. She was, she was what she was based upon how her father raised her. Fathers start the work, but the husband, the husband takes it from there. Understand why the father walks the girl down the aisle? <laughs> Understand why she give, he gives her away? What's really happening there? When that bride goes from being a daughter to being a wife? Because there's a work that has begun, but it's not done. I mean, you read this, you read this virtuous woman, right? And it's a poem. It's a it's it's alphabetical in the Hebrew, so you have Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, you work your way through the alphabet. Every Jewish girl can memorize this based on the fact that these verses were all alphabetical. And you think, wow, this is an awesome woman. This is the woman I want to be someday. This is the woman I'm going, I'm becoming. God is faithfully getting me to this point. Do you think this woman exists anywhere on her wedding day? How did she get to have this kind of character as a virgin daughter in her father's house? Now she had character as a virgin daughter in her father's house, but not this character. Not the, the, uh, the woman of excellence. The Isha Chayil, as it's called here. The, uh, the language on this. Okay, fathers start the work, but the husbands, the husbands are the primary sanctifiers of their wife in marriage. You'll notice in... Uh, as long as I'm here, look down to verse 29. Verse 28 says, Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also. And he praises her saying. So her children rise up and bless her. She didn't have them on her wedding day. Okay, They came later. They came after the marriage. Her children rise up and bless her. What a blessing. I thought that at Mary Ellen's service that Mary Ann got to stand up and offer the eulogy for her mom. That's her children rising up and blessing her. Glenn and, and, and uh, John Carnegie got to bless Nan Carnegie at their mother's service and, and the children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her saying, and, and look at what he says. This is his testimony. Many daughters have done nobly. Now why is the husband concerned about daughters? What's, what's this about? Because before he married her, she was a daughter. She was somebody else's daughter, his, his, his father-in-law's daughter. Many daughters have done nobly. And out of all the girls I could have married, out of all the daughters out there that ever were brought up by believing fathers in the Word of God, you excel them all. Now you start as a daughter in your father's home, but to bring to that excel status, you excel them all, to be the woman of excellence, did the dad do that? No, because you leave father and mother and you cleave to one another. 
the growth in marriage happens as the wife ministers to the husband, as the husband ministers to the wife. All right. Let me grab these other Proverbs while I'm at it. A woman of excellence who can find. The woman of excellence uh, is not introduced in Proverbs 31. She actually shows up earlier than that in Proverbs 12. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. So a man can be married to two different kinds of women or the same woman at two different times. (laughs) Okay? An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. And so here's the contrast. What kind of wife do you want? Well, what kind of wife are you ministering to? Are you washing her with the word? Are you ministering to her? Are you edifying her? Because if you have a, a, a shameful wife, if you have the rotten to the bone wife, well, who did that? Are you washing her with the word? Are you ministering to her? And uh, is, the, is the solution to just, you know, divorce her and find a better wife? Or is the, does the scripture command you to love her as Christ loved the church and to wash her with the word? If you don't want the rotten to the bone shameful wife, then minister to her, edify her, build her up. So that she does become the excellent wife, crown of her husband. The Lord can find, the Lord does provide. When we get into Proverbs 19, and we're almost there. I know we've been in chapter 18 for 100 years, but we're going to get to Proverbs 19 now. And in Proverbs 19, 14, we're told, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. From the Lord. You know, when your dad dies and the will is read, yeah, you might end up with a house or wealth or land or whatever, but you're not getting your spouse in the, in the inheritance. <laughs> That's coming from the Lord. A prudent wife. And so, you know, I, I look at Proverbs 19, 14, and that's the answer to the question of a, a woman of excellence, who can find? Who can find? Well, Proverbs 19, 14 says the Lord does. That she comes from the Lord. Fathers may start the work, many daughters have done nobly, but husbands are, (laughs) and I call them the word wife washers. I changed this about 10 times. The wife word washers, the word wife washers. I wanted to use three W's there. The word wife washers. And we'll close with Ephesians 5, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command. Just as Christ also loved the church. Sacrificial love, if she deserves it or not. 
Keep loving her. What if she's rottenness to the bones? Keep loving her. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Now that's Jesus sanctifying the church, but what's the parallel? Husbands sanctifying their wives. Do we sanctify our wives? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There's all the W's, right? Washing, water, word. The water of the word. Washing the wife. Husbands, wash your wives. Okay? <laughs> we're not talking bathtub or shower. You know, that's, that's different. All right? But we're talking about using the Word of God, washing her constantly with the Word of God. Because it cleanses. It sanctifies that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. This isn't going to heaven when you die. This is in time. This is right here, right now. We're going to prove that in Colossians 1 as well. The presentation in Colossians 1 is not going to heaven when you die. That's serving God today in time. Presenting to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. So also husbands ought to love their own wives. And so if, if as Jesus is presenting the, the bride, we present our bride, our wife, with the Word of God. And, and you can't, how, how can you be critical in this regard? How can you be condemning? How can you, uh, uh, you know, attack your wife for being so terrible and, and cutting her down and all that other stuff? Well, if you see something you're not satisfied with, what are you doing? Wash her, cleanse her. Is there a spot? Is there a blemish? Is there a wrinkle? Minister the Word of God. We're not saying fix everything you see wrong. We're saying keep washing her in the Word of God and watch what the Word of God does. Watch what the Word of God does. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Nourishing and cherishing. So fathers may start the work, and you want to have a many daughters have done nobly type of thing. I mean, when you're giving your daughter to a man, as if he exists somewhere in this world worthy of your daughter, but when when you are when you are transferring custody of that soul you've been shepherding all her life to the hand of a new shepherd. The fathers start the work, but husbands are the wife washers, washing with the water of the word. All right, well, there we have it. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for truth. And I do pray, Father, uh, for our marriages here at Austin Bible Church. I pray for, um, I pray for Jim and his new circumstance as a widow, widower. And uh, I just thank you for Mary Ellen. What a testimony. What a joy, Father. Thank you for the care that she demonstrated to her husband. Just thank you for all your grace. Thank you for, um, for uh, the blessings we have to, to study these things, to make application, to grow. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.